back a long way, um, and uh, also with Peter, her husband, who's an obstetrician in the area, uh, and always get a good laugh with him. And so Nancy will share some of the some great information, and 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 Jessica Williams, who used to be a Zimmerman. So sometimes they confuse me in the Williams Zimmerman. So Dr. Dr. Williams, we're great to have you. Uh, they are just outstanding individuals that will share some great information with you, and we'll have a time at the end, like always, for the Q and A. Make sure you type them in. Uh, if you don't hear me, uh, make sure you tell Dr. Shriver that you don't hear me because last time my microphone was not connected, although Steve has assured me today that the microphone is connected. So again, welcome, enjoy your coffee while you're listening to a great presentation from Dr. Shriver, Dr. Williams, and Dr. Trout. John. Thank you, Dr. Salazar, and good morning to everyone. Uh, it's a beautiful fall morning, at least it wasn't my drive in. Um, let's see if we can get this advanced. All right, updates on COVID-19. It's amazingly September 25th, uh, 2020. We've been doing this for more months than I think all of us would like, but there's a lot going on. And um, let, me, let me start off. There is light at the end of the tunnel and all of you have been watching the vaccine um, uh, research coming out. There's several vaccines in phase two or three clinical trials. I will say, in my view, the Novavax vaccine has the best uh, data in terms of being the most immunogenic and it's uh, technology that we've already used for the hepatitis B vaccine. It's recombinant spike protein. So stay tuned and watch that vaccine carefully. I suspect that will be the one that will we will be giving to children. I, I doubt, I just don't see us giving an, an RNA vaccine or an adenovirus vaccine to children right now. But I do think the Novavax vaccine is an extremely viable uh, uh, vaccine for children. We shall see. However, realistically, despite these vaccine trials and warp speed and all of that, um, we're really just get going on the phase three trials. You need thousands of people. We do not yet know a proven safe and effective vaccine. And so it's really going to be winter, I think, before the data are come out that um, we're comfortable with maybe even a little bit later. And then you're talking about spring of 21, um, to roll out more widespread use of a vaccine. So I, I think that's a realistic timeline. I have no doubt there'll be some attempts to bend that, but I believe that's sort of a scientific timeline. I will say the lack of a uniform national response to this pandemic has continued to haunt us. We have surges in tw over 20 states. It's just not necessary, but that's where it is. And we continue to have the highest number of new cases and deaths of any country in the developed world. Uh, however, there is also a worldwide resurgence of new cases. We're going to go over some of these data and, um, and then ask questions at the end. Now, Connecticut continues to have a very low death rate uh, from COVID. Unfortunately, this is going to creep up just a bit because we are in the midst of a spike uh, in Connecticut. Uh, you can see it's very clear. It's gone up to uh, 150 to 200 cases, uh, new cases a day. It's not terrible but it requires vigilance. We need to reinforce with our patients and parents. It's not time to give up. Continue mask, washing hands, social and physical distancing. They're all gonna be important to keep this spike um, low. Uh, schools are reopening. There's gonna be a lot of pressure uh, on this. We need to watch this very closely. And we are observing more community cases. We're seeing cases ourselves at Connecticut Children's. Now, New York, uh, which is our behemoth to the south, remains stable and low. And I, that's very important for us because the initial epidemic crept up from New York through Fairfield County. At the moment, New York and New York State appear to be relatively stable, and that's important for us. 
Our northern neighbor, uh, the behemoth to the north, which would be Massachusetts, is in the midst of an uptake. They're having about three to 500 cases on a, on a bad day. Um, we need to watch this very closely. Uh, people move back and forth between those states. But again, uh, Massachusetts is being pretty aggressive on managing this, and we'll just have to watch closely. But all of New England now is doing okay, but is involved with an uptick. It's happening in Maine. It's a little bit in New Hampshire as well. So we'll need to watch that very closely in the coming weeks. Rhode Island, now on the red list again for travel. Uh, you can see um, they've popped up quite a bit on new reported cases. So New England is still an island of relative calm in the pandemic, but we're, we're beginning to have an uptick and we're gonna, again, all of us need to be very vigilant. It's not time to throw up our hands and declare victory. Now, this is the return from travel map. It might've changed, it changes every couple of days, but you can see Rhode Island and Delaware have now been added back to that you either have to self quarantine or have a negative PCR within 72 hours. And you can see most of the rest of the country has above, above 10 new cases per 100,000. It's just the entire country with exceptions. So. Uh, this is a problem and it's going to continue to burn away um, uh, through the fall unless we have a more uniform national response. The United States continues to have 40,000 new cases daily. Uh, that's among the highest in the world from, from countries we can trust their reporting. It's, it's among the highest in the world. Uh, not something to be proud of. In addition, uh, we're cooking along at between 800 and 1,000 deaths daily in the United States still. Again, these are, in my mind, mostly preventable deaths. We understand this disease much better now. We know how to prevent it with wearing masks and physical distancing and washing our hands. And uh, these are, many of these are preventable deaths. So the projection now, we're at 200,000 uh, deaths, the projection is if we cook along like this till January 1st, we're gonna be around 400,000 fatalities from this pandemic in the United States, by far the highest in any developed country in the world. Now, why is this happening? Why are we having 40,000 cases a day? Because we have a brand new hotspots um, in the Midwest. This is North Dakota, which I think is even higher. It's at 55 uh, 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 new cases, uh, per 100,000 per day. It's a small state. I mentioned last week, it's only got six, 700,000 people, but this is gonna end up being a lot of cases for them and the mortality rates up. Uh, and so the Dakotas uh, are in trouble in this pandemic right now. Uh, ditto uh, with the rest of the Midwest. This is Wisconsin. Wisconsin's a big state and it borders, your, uh, Milwaukee's an hour and a half from Chicago where millions of people live. And you can see this is a problem. Uh, Wisconsin's at around 2,000 new cases a day. So you can see, you can add this up and you can see how we get to 40,000 new cases a day in the United States. Now, unfortunately, the EU, which had been doing very well, uh, is now in a bit of a resurgence, particularly in Spain and France. I showed you France last week. This is Spain, which is now having more cases than they had in the peak of their April surge. So. There's great worry in the EU that this is gonna spread throughout the European Union and, and that could pose a major problem uh, uh, for the world actually, if, if that happens. Canada, our neighbor to the North who has been uh, managing this pandemic remarkably well is undergoing a resurgence. 
Um, they're quite concerned about it and the issue of regional lockdowns uh, in, in Canada are on the table and I don't know where this is going to go. It's particularly, uh, particularly bad in Montreal and Toronto and uh, a couple of places on the west coast of Canada. So again, um, the rest of the world enjoyed a very good summer and now unfortunately with, with opening up businesses and more social contact, uh, we're having a resurgence worldwide. Changing tone, um, immunity. There's been a lot of data. Does immunity last? Can you get reinfected? What do we do? And there's, there's some disagreement in the literature about that. This is a paper that just came out from Vanderbilt, and they measured antibody titers in healthcare workers who had, were antibody positive. And they, they checked hundreds of healthcare workers, took out all the people who were antibody positive, and then tracked them. And they found that the antibody titers go down pretty fast over about 90 days, 60 to 90 days. And so these are data we're going to need to watch very closely because if the vaccine has the same problem of waning immunity, it could be more like an influenza vaccine that we have to give every year if this becomes a, um, an endemic virus, which it might. So this is important and it may lead us to having annual vaccinations uh, for this, this virus as we move to immunization era for COVID. What about blood type? You may remember uh, a few months ago, type A, it's bad, this and that. So there's some very good data now that came out in the American Journal of Hematology. Um, and what they found, hundreds of people, it was a multi-center trial. It came out of Mass General, but it included almost 500 people. If you have blood type O, you're less likely to have a positive test. If you're type B or AB, you're more likely to have a positive test. But there's no relation between severity of illness and blood type. A, B, O, blood type was not correlated with getting sicker to be intubated or mortality. So I think we're, we're beginning to tease out blood type, but it does not look like your type will predispose you to have worse COVID or uh, mortality from COVID. Obesity, and we're going to hear more about this in a few minutes because I think it's a really important issue to be talking about. Obesity uh, is a risk factor for hospitalization. Um, from SARS-CoV-2. This is an interesting study. It's at PNAS, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and they looked at 334,000 people in the UK, um, and the chances of being hospitalized were dramatically increased with body mass index. And you can see with stage two obesity at the bottom, uh, the COVID-19 admissions per 10,000 people was just huge. So, um, Obesity uh, clearly predisposed to hospitalization with infection for COVID in the United Kingdom. No question about it. These are very good data. Similarly, um, uh, in a meta-analysis looking at a variety of different sources, obese individuals were found to be almost 50% more likely to die from infection with SARS-CoV-2. This was, a, as I said, a meta-analysis of 38 studies. Um, and, and the hypothesis, and I'm going to run through this, why would this be? Uh, and it turns out, and you'll probably hear more about this, but inflammation is abnormal in obese individuals. And so there's an upregulation of inflammation, and this may predispose to have an overly active inflammatory response to COVID-19 when you're infected with COVID-19. It's not clear, but these are hypotheses. Um, Obese people with BMI above a certain amount also have immune impairments that are, that are being teased out and understood better, and obviously a, a metabolic dysfunction. So 
these comorbidities, the immune dysfunction, and inflammation probably are the components that predispose obese individuals to have higher mortality and be more likely to be sick uh, with SARS-CoV-2. Um, what predicts mortality other than obesity? Are there other things that predict more mortality? And this is a very good study that came out of New York Presbyterian uh, very recently where they found that viral load predicted mortality and they were looking at cancer patients because it was Memorial Sloan, but they were also looking at patients without cancer. And they found that viral load predicted um, uh, whether you were gonna die. So they looked at patients with cancer and a general population group, and they looked at high, which is the high viral titer when they were admitted and got sick, medium, and low. And those with high viral titer had, if you had cancer, almost a 50% chance of mortality and 40% if you are a general population non-cancer patient. So uh, viral titer early on in the disease predicts mortality. We have the most amazing tools in the history of medicine um, applied to this virus. It's quite remarkable. I'm just going to show one area. This is an electron, super electron micrograph study of the organism. And you can see this is an EM. This came from China. It's in press in the, in the scientific journal Cell. You can see the virus with the spike proteins. And what they've been able to do is strip away the outer envelope and look at the packaging of RNA, which you can see in the EM uh, with those, that's the black and white, and they colorized it here. So go, going back, you can see the virus has this spike protein envelope, and then with inside, the RNA is packaged in a very specific way. This is great data because this will help us target other things. How is that virus assembled in those packages? Could we disrupt it? That's the RNA. How is the RNA assembled in those packages? Could we disrupt it? and make the virus less infectious. So amazing work is being done. I've never seen science move this fast uh, in, in my career, certainly. When are you infectious? These are questions all of us are being asked. And uh, this is a study from Oxford. It's a preprint, so it means it hasn't been peer reviewed, but I'll show it to you anyway. And they found, they looked at a fraction of transmission uh, during several days before the onset of symptoms, these are all symptomatic patients, zero is when you first got symptoms, and they found that the peak transmission was two to three days before you had symptoms and two to three days after you had symptoms. So you're infectious prior to symptoms. This is important, probably 48 hours. And then after symptoms, you can see by day 10, you're not infectious, which fits in well with our recommendations of 10 days. So these are important data, but they make us a little wary, and people need to understand that within 48 hours prior to being symptomatic, you're probably infectious. Now, this, these are questions that have come up uh, this week quite a bit. Um, you're a private uh, practice, you're at the Academic Health Center, you're somewhere, and you're asked, my child had mild COVID, and they opened up the sports, is it okay? So the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out with some recommendations, and here's the answer. We don't know, okay? We don't have the data. The disease is only eight months old, but some very common sense recommendations have been made. So if the participant, the child, had COVID-19 during the season, the data are limited, but we're worried about myocarditis, subclinical myocarditis, and that leads to arrhythmias. 
So clearly, if the child was very sick and had MISI or was intubated or was in the ICU, was quite sick with COVID, all of everyone feels that they need a cardiovascular analysis, they need to be seen by a cardiologist and restricted, and then uh, the decision to made for sports needs to be made together with the primary care practitioner. But that, re that really requires a cardiac consultation, EKG, maybe an echocardiogram, et cetera. Those who had mild, moderate symptoms or even asymptomatic, in general, the AAP is recommending 14 days of um, asymptomatic uh, to obtain, and then to examine the patient and decide whether there were any symptoms that made you suspicious and do an EKG if there were. So this is now on the AAP website. Um, we've been asked this a number of times this week. It's, they're good, solid, common sense suggestions. We simply don't have all the answers yet on this though. Now, um, I do, I'm a movie buff and this is gonna be um, a little light. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly, my last slide for the last you know, four months, to me it was obvious what that was about, but actually I was asked like, Dr. Shriver, like what's with the good, bad, and ugly? Which it basically is movie history. So I thought I'd give you a little movie history. I apologize for those who are well-versed in this, but those who are not, the good, the bad, the ugly was a movie in 1966 and they were called spaghetti westerns. And they were, Sergio Leone was the director, it was Italian, they were Italian movies, and Clint Eastwood was the star. This movie in retrospect now is ranked as one of the best westerns in history, I kid you not, it's really true. And the good was Clint Eastwood, he was the good guy. The bad was this guy, Lee Van Cleef, who played a lot of bad guys, he's on the right, he looks like a bad guy, he's on the right. And then the ugly was Eli Wallach, you know, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, he was the ugly. And, and he was a cowboy, he was bad also. So the good, the bad, the ugly is from this movie. And um, those of you who didn't know that, you have a little movie education, I suggest you could rent the movie. It's actually pretty good. Uh, those of you who already knew, I apologize for re-educating you on this topic. Everyone have a great week. Um, we are always there to answer questions through one call or paging or however you need to get hold of us, we're there for you and please let us know. I'm really excited to have our next uh, team talk about uh, obesity because it's really important in the COVID era. Thank you, John. That was uh, outstanding. And I'm going to probably get that movie on Netflix. I don't think you can go. There's no blockbuster anymore in my neighborhood. So, uh, no which is probably, now we stream. it was way before that when they came out. Uh, so apologies for those of you who didn't hear me at the beginning. I think the, the microphone was not working. Um, I said all kinds of nice things, and so uh, just you know, <laughs> you know, we, that, that's that's all you need to know. And uh, just have, and I wanted we to welcome, especially doc, Dr. Trout and and Dr. Williams. I wanted to welcome them. I, what I did say is that Nancy was uh, was my co-resident about five years ago when we were here at Hartford, um, and Dr. Williams, formerly Zimmerman, which, who I also uh, uh, knew from a, from a while uh, back, although although she's like you know two generations younger than Nancy and I, so at we'll least. leave it at that. <laughs> So uh, Nancy and two? <laughs> no, two generations younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, take take it over. Okay. Um, so Jessica and I today are going to talk about. It was really more like a catchy title: obesity prevention and treatment in the time of COVID. In uh, uh, respect to not movies but books, um, and this is going to be a very broad but quick overview of obesity prevention, which I'm going to do, and treatment, which uh, Jessica is going to touch on. Um, but I would like to point out that obesity really is the other pandemic, that it's sort of this chronic pandemic that n we're really not addressing, but that the, the obesity rates just keep rising, comorbidities 
um, keep rising. And now with COVID, we're seeing yet another um, you know, risk factor and comorbidity for obesity. So we're gonna try and work a little bit through that today. Um, so these are a lot of learning objectives for a short period of time, but we're gonna try and look at, you know, in the spirit of, of trying to address social, de address social determinants, um, some of the racial and ethnic disparities in risk for obesity and severe COVID infection. I'm gonna look at some of the maternal and child risk factors for developing obesity to help with prevention how to implement obesity prevention in pediatric practice. And then I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Williams and she'll talk about um, the approach, stepwise approach to obesity treatment and, and talking a little bit about um, medication and bariatric surgery. So this should come as no surprise to anybody, the health impacts of obesity. Um, obesity, childhood obesity has tripled over the past 30 years. Almost 19% of children two to 19 years now have obesity. And really shockingly, 8% of children younger than two. Um, so it's really you know, moving down into even our, our infants and toddlers. Um, we know that obesity tracks into adulthood and that those kids have um, uh, worse health outcomes than children with a normal weight. Um, rates are higher for low income and minority children. And this feeds into some data I'm gonna get into in a minute about COVID infections as well. Um, and there is a significant, significant impact of obesity related illness on healthcare costs. And childhood obesity alone um, leads to over $14 billion in direct medical costs annually. And that's just in the United States, not even worldwide. Um, so just to touch a little bit on COVID, because it is in our title and that's sort of what we're talking about, um, that while some would have you believe that uh, COVID affects virtually no children and children are almost immune, um, we have data that shows that that's not the case. Um, and while most reported uh, cases of COVID in children um, under 18 are asymptomatic or mild, um, there's a new MMWR report that just was published, I think in the last week or two, um, that show that there are COVID-19 hospitalizations, definitely lower in children than in adults, eight per 100,000 versus um, 164 in adults, but that one in three children who are hospitalized um, for COVID-19 are admitted to the ICU. Um, there are higher rates of, of both hospitalization and death for children um, who are Hispanic or black and 74% of children who died of COVID-19 and COVID-19 complications were Hispanic or black. Um, and then this, what Dr. Um, Schreiber was just alluding to was that 42% of hospitalized children who had one or more underlying condition, um, obesity was the most prevalent. Um, with a, uh, kids with a BMI over 30, um, through almost you know, close to 40% of those required hospitalization. Um, and if you look at the health disparities, um, you know, the, the health disparities that cause, um, you know, increases in COVID also cause increases in obesity. Um, there are definitely racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic inequities that exist in overweight and obesity risk for children in Connecticut, across the country, um, that we know that the prevalence of obesity increases almost linearly, actually, as household income decreases, um, and Black and Latino children have higher rates. Um, and when you think about it, sort of the reasons that kids get exposed to COVID, you know, it's all of the social determinants that, that um, put kids at increased exposure for overweight and obesity. Um, mothers and, and fathers who have obesity, single parent households, lower breastfeeding rates, um, earlier introduction of solid foods, up to like two, two to four times more screen time. 
and definitely higher intake of sweetened beverages and fast food. Um, and so one of the things I'm gonna talk about is um, how we give parents strategies and information to promote healthy behaviors that can help, that can help their children achieve a healthy weight. Um, this is a, a very kind of complicated model. This is from Leanne Birch of Penn State. Um, but just looking at an ecological model, and I put it up here, I'm not going to go into detail, but um, it bears studying at some point if you can, but it's really a schematic of the complexity of all the components that go into childhood obesity. Um, and if you look at them, you can really see um, some of the, the social determinants in terms of parental work hours and feeding practices, accessibility of, you know, convenience foods, restaurants versus actual grocery stores, crime rates, socioeconomic status. There's, it goes on and on and on. But this is just, obesity is an incredibly complex um, disease, chronic disease. And I think when you look at this, you can understand it's really not just, you know, calories in and calories out. It's far, far, far more complicated than that. Um, so we do know that obesity and overweight track from early childhood into later life. And these are just a couple of, of studies that sort of show that. But rapid increases in weight for length in the first six months of life will increase overweight at three. Um, and then throughout childhood, so children with a high BMI um, at two to five years are more likely to be overweight at age 12. The last three are, I think, the most alarming. Severely obese children who have BMIs greater than the 98th or 99th percentile Severely obese two-year-olds have an 80% chance of being obese, of having obesity by age 35, and severely obese five-year-olds have a 90% chance. Um, the, the fourth box here, the simulated growth trajectories, this was a study done at Harvard, and they created a model of growth, growth trajectories going out over the next, um, you know, multiple 50 years, I think. Um, and they predict that today, you know, 57% of today's children will be obese by age 35, which is an incredibly, incredibly alarming statistics. And then this last one, um, which was a study out of Germany, that looked at um, that uh, adolescents, you know, who had obesity and just growth during childhood, and they found that um, the most rapid weight gain among adolescents with obesity occurred between two to six years of age and early adiposity rebound, which I'll come back to um, in a minute. So how do we prevent the problem? That's what we as pediatricians do. We, you know, prevention is, you know, our middle name. We prevent infectious diseases with vaccines if parents will let us give their kids vaccines. And we prevent injury with, um, you know, anticipatory guidance and childproofing. Um, so we need to get a little bit better at trying to prevent obesity. And these are just sort of the domains in general that, um, that a lot of the studies look at and a lot of the organizations talk about. But nutrition, like promoting breastfeeding and early responsive feeding practices, shaping healthy food preferences for our children from very early on by promoting fresh fruits and vegetables, um, avoiding processed foods and added sugars. And that is so much harder than it needs to be with our given our food industry. Um, there's new Beverage consensus recommendations about promoting healthy beverage consumption, water and unflavored milk, no juice, no sugar sweetened beverages, really trying to get away from all of that. Um, and then there is a, a really emerging um, evidence um, base of the importance of sleep and good sleep from infancy and throughout childhood and how that connects with obesity risk. And then the bottom two, obviously promoting daily physical activity. And this has been a real problem with COVID. Um, 
as has minimizing screen time and sedentary behavior because there's just a lot of downtime in quarantined uh, families. Um, and I actually had a couple of families, um, you know, everyone's talking about the quarantine 15 as opposed to like the freshman 15. And I had a, a parent yesterday talking about their house where they had their own COVID-19 because they had all gained at least 19 pounds, she felt, during this pandemic. So um, it's been tough. So this is the uh, AAP um, approach. It's, it's taking a balance approach. And, and there are different um, touch points for each age group, which the AAP goes through. But in you know, a nutshell, it's really just these are the touch points talking, um, for talking to parents. Belief, how the parent's behavior and attitude affects the child in terms of eating activity, obesity prevention, assessment, explaining and sharing growth charts with parents. And this is really, really important to just, um, you know, explain, like show the growth chart to the parents at every well child visit, explain the importance of keeping the child on the chart. Um, lifestyles, the L, recognizing the role of the family's lifestyle and supporting optimal nutrition and activity. Um, a is activity, so you need safe and appropriate activities for the child with limitations in screen time, which again, very, very difficult during this time of COVID. Um, nutrition is an obvious one. Breastfeeding for infants, five fruits and vegetables a day for older kids really pay attention to beverages. We have, I don't think we have good recognition of how many calories we drink from, you know, the mocha, choca, latte, whipped cream, whatever beverages from Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and all that. Portion sizes is a really big one. And then the importance of family meals. Um, child really focusing on the appropriate developmental age or stage of the child and how that affects their eating behaviors and practices. Um, an environment, make sure that you have a safe home environment where kids can play and read, the safe neighborhood, um, and then childcare environment and schools. Um, so this is data from the Robert Wood Johnson Healthy Eating Research and also the Institute of Medicine. They really looked at a lot of studies um, um, looking at risk factors for developing obesity. And the consensus that they've come up with really is that there are maternal and pediatric factors that really identify risk. So high maternal pre-pregnancy BMI, parental obesity, maternal gestational diabetes, excessive weight gain during pregnancy, and maternal smoking. And if you have moms who've had those for, um, you know, in their history, when you're seeing the kids in infancy, um, you know, for their first visits, you know, document that or just note that those kids are at risk. And then the pediatric factors, the LGA kids, um, I would say the second one, the rapid weight gain, we have like a pointer here, I don't know. The second one is probably the most important. I'm going to talk about that again in a second. But rapid weight gain, crossing um, more than two weight for length or BMI percentiles on the growth curve, that is absolutely a risk factor. And we see that um, frequently in the kids that we see in obesity and weight management. And I see it obviously in primary care, which is my other hat that I wear. Um, so higher weight, um, absolute weight for length. And, um, and as we've already talked about, lower socioeconomic status and racial and ethnic minorities and then kids who get insufficient sleep, less than 12 hours a day for infants. Um, and then, you know, it, it's a little bit less than that in the older kids. Um, so this is what I'm talking about with tracking growth. So when you have these kids who are crossing, and you can see on the weight for length, graph, like that child literally has crossed a percentile at every single visit, you know, until they're over the, you know, the 95th. Um, and so when you have a child like that, that needs intervention. You can't really just wait. That needs nutritional intervention. 
refer those kids to us in obesity and weight management. We would love to see them and help the parents to help their kids. Um, this is the other growth pattern that's really important. So you can sort of see um, in, the, um, in the BMI curve at two, there's really like a dip between sort of two and five to six. And that's where like adiposity sort of goes down. And then it's what we call the adiposity rebound where it starts to go up. But if it starts going up like it does in this child, at two, it crosses like multiple um, BMI curves, you know, starting from two, that is a really um, dangerous growth pattern. And we would love to see them, you know, when they're five or six before they get to where they are when they're, you know, 10, 11, 12. And it becomes much, much harder to reverse these behaviors um, and that adiposity trend. Um, so this is my last slide, and then I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Williams. So I think one of the things we need to think about is how we expand the role of primary care in the prevention and treatment of obesity. And I think I've sort of talked about the left side here, but five through nine, you know, I think that really speaks to the importance of community. And this is my public health hat that I'm going to wear here for a second. Um, but really referring to community programs and to specialty care, which is obesity and weight management. And we are here in my SCORE program and the Office for Community Child Health. We have educational programs that we can come in and do in practices and with community health workers, community health education. So we have consistency, consistency of messaging um, for parents and for um, early care and education providers and for teachers. Multi-sector community initiatives um, are really, really important because as we saw in the ecological model, it really, there are so many community factors at play. And then policy advocacy, um, try to be aware of the policy um, of the policies that are, you know, up for vote for sugar sweetened beverage taxes, for healthy kids meal, um, um, legislation. Th these are all things that have been relatively recently on the ballot for, ad, you know, advertising to children. Um, and and talk to your congresspeople, you know, or talk to your state legislature legislators, um, and be active in policy advocacy because that's really, I think, one of the ways that we really make changes. Um, all right. So now um, I'm going to switch here, and Dr. Williams is going to talk about uh, treatment approach. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so I am going to touch a little bit on COVID, but uh, in all transparency, I think what I'd like to do more in the few minutes that I'm going to spend with you is walk through a little bit more of the treatment that we are doing um, in the comprehensive um, multidisciplinary um, obesity weight management types of programs. Nancy did a beautiful job of walking through what stage one and two um, look like and some extra tips um, and suggestions for the treatment of pediatric obesity in the primary care home. What I'd like to do is sort of shift a little bit and talk about if this is not working yet, um, if more is needed for that child and for that family, what are we doing in the area of obesity management um, in our team? And what might you expect perhaps to preview for your families and to sort of think about um, when you're you know, working with us together um, uh, on, these, uh, on these difficult problems for pediatric obesity? So stage three um, refers to a type of program like uh, Nancy and I are uh, uh, privileged to, to be with. We uh, work together with um, a registered dietitian, uh, physical therapy is a part of our program, psychology is a part of our program, and the medical team as well. Um, and then stage four is uh, the tertiary care specifically. That's where we're um, also partnering with our surgical friends as well. 
Um, and, you know, to go back to some terminology just for a quick moment, um, there's been a shift in some of the terminology um, for describing the uh, children who have obesity that is more remarkable. Um, we've heard a little bit earlier today, and Dr. Schreiber, your slide had mentioned uh, class one and, and class two obesity. Um, so I wanted to go back and define that because those are newer terms for us to see in the pediatric world, and I wanted to just give us a, a moment to look at that together. Um, so in the adult world, they use class one, class two, and class three obesity quite commonly. Um, and those are defined on the right um, with the BMIs of 30, 35, and 40 at, at, those, um, at those marks. Um, dialing it back to pediatrics, the way that we're going to reference a class one, two, and three is we're going to try to describe how far beyond that 95th percentile this child's BMI lies. And so it's math, um, you can just do it mathematically, you know, with your calculator um, at the bedside when you see the, the child's BMI and compare it to the, what the 95th um, percentile curve represents. Or if um, your electronic health record has, has caught up to it, um, ours is, is now displaying this for us um, here in this uh, graph that you can see on the left. Um, so, you know, what we're trying to do is, is stratify how significant this pediatric obesity is. And um, certainly um, the, the picture on the left shows that this kid is really having quite a challenge. Um, what is really helpful, not just to have a better ability to classify and have the same terminology, um, we can dial this also now to better risk stratification and plotting our BMIs. Um, and I remember, you know, pegging at the top pretty often for some of our single day and in our patients coming in to see us, that their, their weight is high, but it is much higher than it, than it used to be in the past. If you look over the last uh, you know, 10 to 20 years, the rates of class two and, and grand tour. Um, if you would like to take a look at some more detailed information, I've cited an excellent article at the bottom of this slide. Um, this is an excellent guide to the approach for using pharmacotherapy in adolescence. Um, it is great, it goes into a really nice amount of depth. Um, and it really, I think, is, is a great practice guideline for, for folks to really embrace. So medications are recommended to be used only in the context of a multidisciplinary program. Um, it would be um, lovely if the answer to uh, class two and three obesity would, were to come out of a, of a pill bottle. Um, it certainly does not, it absolutely cannot, but medications along with a very intensive program can together be uh, very helpful for these children. Um, by consensus at this point, we're generally thinking of medications for a child who is in the tween or above age ranges. The reason being right now is there's not a lot of data on the effect of puberty um, and growth uh, for, for linear growth um, for um, the kids who might receive medications younger than that. I will say the asterisk next to this though is meant to um, remind me to say, we certainly at times will still use pharmacotherapy for kids who are younger, who have very extreme difficulties. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's definitely a starting point for general consideration for medication therapy. I think it's remarkable to, to, to sort of pause and, and realize how low the severity of the obesity needs to be before we can consider pharmacotherapy. So you don't have to push um, toward using pharmacotherapy for every patient who's over, um, 
over the, the class one market into class two. But it's certainly because the uh, uh, outcomes of diet and exercise uh, treatments alone are not shown to have durable, um, uh, sustainable weight loss on their own, um, we are starting to um, expand and think about using pharmacotherapy for, for our patients. Um, a brief touch on the paradigm, like what could be expected if um, a patient is going to receive pharmacotherapy for obesity? Um, I'll skip to the bottom. The first piece is that this is not a brief course of treatment. Um, and, and that really, I think, is, is uh, step one. You know, this is not a one month um, medication. What we're usually doing is somewhere between six to 12 months on average is a starting point. And some patients need some beyond, maybe at a tapered dose necessarily. But generally, these are not brief courses of therapy. There are multiple types of medications to consider. I'll talk about those in the next slide briefly, but essentially we're gonna choose the medication based on what we know about the, the mechanism of action, what kind of medication class it comes from, and so how that might be helpful with the current comorbidities that we're seeing. And then also on the opposite, being very careful not to exacerbate the comorbidities with the side effect profiles that are potential with those medications. So we're gonna sort of think about all three of those factors and fold those in together. Insurance coverage and cost out of pocket is absolutely a consideration. There are many of these medications that are not covered by most health insurances um, or uh, only prescribe, you know, only cover for short periods of time, et cetera. So the cost out of pocket um, does need to be thoughtfully considered. Um, some of them have generics um, over the counter, et cetera, and some of them are extremely costly. Um, so really need to think about those pieces. Um, the uh, paradigm for treatment, um, our gold standard is to prescribe for three months and look at the weight loss. Um, if 5% weight loss is achieved, then that is typically considered successful and the medication is continued. That's certainly for the adult world, 100%. In the pediatric world, given that some of these kids are continuing to grow um, in a linear fashion as well, um, we're a little bit more uh, liberal in that if we see not just that it's a 5% weight loss, but that we've really bent the curve and we're starting to really find some you know, um, improvement in the weight gain pattern, we're gonna potentially call that successful as well. If these meds are not helpful, we stop and we switch gears and we use a different medication. So there's a few on and a few off label, more than a few off, more off than on label um, uh, medications. Um, to you know, run through the top considerations, um, metformin is most often used when there's a more direct uh, consideration for it, you know, a pre-diabetes, uh, PCOS, or a patient who is on atypical antipsychotics. Um, the fentramine and topamax, either solo or combined, are very, um, they're quite helpful and they're very commonly prescribed. And liraglutide is starting to gain some more traction as well. So those are the top ones that, that we generally prescribe. Um, just a quick note, there is one that's been removed from the market. So if anyone has seen a patient that's on that one in particular, just uh, heads up on, on the loracasserin. And moving on into the other sort of deeper dive treatment that we have available in a multidisciplinary center is bariatric surgery. And just to remind us all together what bariatric surgery is, there's three, there are three main types of bariatric surgery that are used for uh, children and adolescents. Uh, there's another one that's almost exclusively in the adult world, so I uh, wasn't going to mention it today. The two on the left, though, are the, the leading um, surgical options that you'll see across the country, sleeve gastrectomy and the uh, bypass. Uh, the one on the right is the flat band. I, you know, that used to be a pretty commonly used uh, 
surgery um, option. Um, it's really fallen way, way, way down um, out of favor. The outcomes are just not sustainable. Um, there's a lot more weight regain. Um, there are some later, later complications with that. And there's just really not at all the kind of um, early weight loss in the lap band compared to the other two. So it's really kind of fading off into the distance. Um, so between the other two, about 50-50 potentially when you look at a nationwide um, data set of, of which surgeries are used. The one that we do typically here at Connecticut Children's, we are a sleeve gastrectomy um, uh, a favoring program. And so um, perhaps this has come across your desk and, and perhaps not, but um, in the last year or so, the, the discussion of for whom surgery is appropriate has really widened and, and really strengthened in the eyes of the AAP. Um, we know that kids who have high BMIs, higher and higher, who are starting to really get into these uh, uh, comorbidities when we're in class three or if we're class two plus a comorbidity, they will benefit tremendously um, with uh, in incredible weight loss and a reduction in their comorbidities by going through surgery. And if we have this watchful waiting approach and their BMI just continues to creep up, which it often does, unfortunately, the outcomes of surgery start to actually get a, a, bit, a bit less, a, a bit, a, a bit um, uh, less robust after a BMI of 50. So it's now really, and this is a, a direct quote from the uh, 2019 um, article, it's the timely referral to a high quality multidisciplinary center for a patient who fits the criteria is strongly recommended. Um, and to know who is a high, high quality, um, there is an accreditation center, and I put the little symbol down on the right for you. Um, ASMBS does a really rigorous review of, of locations. There is a specific adolescent designation, and I'm excited to tell you that um, at Connecticut Children's, we got our accreditation um, specifically for adolescent uh, treatment, um, and so we're really pleased and proud of that. Um, we are the, the uh, location in Connecticut to um, have this designation for teens. And so a quick look, and then I will wrap up. And this is really when I was describing the weight loss, a picture is a thousand words. 25% uh, reduction within the first year following surgery is really tremendous. Um, and it's a durable weight loss as well, as you can see. Yes, a subtle tick up, but really these kids um, lose a tremendous amount of weight and they do very, very well. The surgery is extremely safe and the reduction in the comorbidities is just overwhelming. So um, as a wrap up, I've put our um, emails on the slide, our phone number for the center, and uh, you know, honorable mention and um, acknowledgement of all of our teammates over at uh, the Obesity Center. So thanks for your time today. Oh, a real thank you. Okay. <laughs> thank you, thank uh, you. Nancy and, and Jessica and John. And we, we have uh, about 10 minutes for questions and we have a bunch of them. So I'm gonna, John, if you can go up to the podium and hopefully, um, Hopefully you can hear us and you're just gonna have to go back and forth. Um, all right. Um, so the first question is, uh, I'm gonna go specifically. It appears that all states now surging never had the peaks the Northeast had in the spring. It appears that it is their turn now for whatever reason. Uh, it's a good question. You know, uh, the question repeating it, uh, the peaks look different in some of the states that are starting out now. I will say, I think if you look at North Dakota, they're having their peak now. So you're right, it sort of cooked along, never really got up there. It's a rural state, never really got into their small cities. So they're beginning to have their peak and you're gonna see that's gonna come down hopefully 
at the at the other side of it. Ditto with Florida, which is sort of you know down at its peak. So I agree with you. I think each state, because we don't have uniform guidelines, uh, is having their peak at different times. So it's a very good point. Obviously, New York and New York City was really, and then the part of the West Coast really the the first to have that. But now it's sweeping across the country in areas that hadn't had COVID previously. So you're absolutely right. The curves look different. John, also for you, um, um, I assume the higher mortality with viral load refers to adults. Have there been any studies in children with very high viral loads? I'm not aware of it. You're right. That's, those are adult data, although I couldn't tell whether young adults or children were included. And remember, we've had very few children uh, who have primary COVID who end up very sick. They're there. Um, and I'm not aware of the data on their viral load. It's a good question. And then the issue of uh, blood type, um, is, there, is it less likely to have a, if it's less likely to have a positive test for type O blood, is not reasonable that original assumption that type O blood does not, does worse when it comes from the fact that they are recognized later than type A and therefore might not do as well as recognition occurs later in the disease, so. You know, I don't know. All I can tell you is the, the data you saw are what they are. So you're less likely to be infected with type O understanding why and how and what that means i'm not entirely clear and clearly mortality is not affected and severity of illness by your blood type so that's all i could get out of that study i i don't know the answer to that here it's a good question okay and then from dr altman a question a very interesting question about should there be a lower threshold for starting steroids in patients with obesity and covid 19. it's a great question um and i don't know the answer but i would worry that um obese patients who are very ill with covid have a very um unsettled inflammatory response and you know steroids are now an ex the accepted one of the accepted treatments I, I would say all of our therapies should be started very early in case in kids coming in with severe covid and that includes remdesivir as well so i would agree with you but i don't have any data to suggest it's ever been randomized we start immediately we wait a day i don't think those data are available but i, I would agree with you it's probably a good idea Okay, and one last question for you, uh, John, sort of the clarification about room density diagrams and proper use of conference areas in the institution. Any comment on, on density, social distancing? Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, the CDC is kind of, uh, shall we say, waxed and waned on this issue in terms of aerosolization. Um, I'm comfortable, we're, we're very conservative at Connecticut Children's. It sounds like that's a team member. I'm comfortable with how we've managed this. I mean, we're pretty strict. I will say it's likely that there is some aerosol spread. I don't think it's the primary spread. And so again, main, making sure we don't fill up rooms with too many people have become very important, continue to be very important. So I'm, I'm comfortable that our very conservative density mapping should continue. Great. Uh, now this is for, for you, Nancy. Uh, if you can get up there, it'd be great. Yes. Okay. And, uh, the question is, uh, I find the use of fitness trackers in children concerning in terms of triggering eating disorders. What are your thoughts on the use of these trackers for children? Would you recommend these devices be used on children and young teenagers? I, I, think, it, I, I think it's tough to, to make a, a sweeping statement about them. I think for some kids, they are useful. Um, and for some kids, they're not. So some of it is personality. Some of it you can try. Um, you know, I, you know, the kids that we're dealing with tend to really have very little movement in a day. Um, so you know, kids we see in weight management have, 
you know, eight, 10 hours of screen time where they're just sitting. So I think in those kids, just trying to get them moving, I think fitness tractors can be useful. Um, but I think you have to be careful of, you know, the, the you know, kids who get a little bit obsessed with it. Um, and, uh, and I think, I don't, you know, I, have, I haven't seen long term that, you know, they've made a huge difference, but I think it can sort of cue kids into to how much they're moving in a day or not moving. Yeah. From Dr. Blummer, one thing that I recommend to my overweight and obese patients is the kitchen closes after dinner. Um, yeah. You eat nothing from when you finish dinner until you have breakfast the next morning. I, that's, that is a great, great suggestion. And uh, I think we see a lot of kids who do eat kind of consistently and throughout the day. And one of the things that I try and talk about is how the human body really likes sort of a, a, a schedule, a, you know, the maintenance of just sort of, you know, routines and um, closing the kitchen. And I used to do that in my house with my kids all the time. Closing the kitchen after dinner um, is an excellent suggestion. Do you have cameras or what? No, I'm just teasing. Nope. So, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Williams, for you, it locks. Uh, it locks. Um, is it better to track weight loss or BMI? Oh, with interventions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I really, I watch the BMI because there's ongoing linear growth for patients. And so I do watch the BMI. I watch the BMI percentile. There's been a recent article re um, just published um, in the Obesity Journal talking about really moving for all of us um, over to using that new paradigm, that percent above the 95th percentile, um, and using that as the metric to follow. So if you can, and if you can, you know, if you can see it on your electronic health records, I, I think that's a very helpful tool. And sort of uh, uh, another similar question, what is the evidence for success of the interventions in place for childhood obesity? What do we know about what really works? Um, evidence for the recommendations other than consensus? Um, so there are um, adult um, uh, articles for, uh, there are adult studies uh, for all of the medications that I had uh, discussed. Some of them have come down into the teenage world as well. Um, there's a recent um, JAMA article on the use of liraglutide specifically in teenage obesity. Um, there's a lot of great data coming out of the uh, bariatric society um, for the teen um, outcomes from bariatric surgery. That's called Teen Labs. It's a great website if you wanted to take a look as well. That'll look at some of the resolution of the comorbidities um, in particular um, and the weight loss measures as well. So I think I can answer those well for you. Um, yeah. um, great. And this, this is for Nancy. Um, what is your approach to counseling children and families about healthy food, cho healthy food choices at school and, and by the way, at, at a hospital? Yeah, well, for the hospital, we were on a campaign right before COVID hit to, to eliminate sugar-sweetened beverages from the hospital that kind of got derailed. So at some point, we'll uh, sort of get back to that. Um, and I, you know, I try and go with, you know, the the sort of general nutritional recommendations, um, five fruits and vegetables a day. Again, like I talked about with beverages, you know, water or, you know, low fat milk and trying to stay away from sugar sweetened beverages. Um, and then um, whole grains, proteins, and, and really fresh, fresh foods or just like fruits and vegetables, trying not to eat a lot of, of prepackaged um, and processed foods. Those are sort of part of the, of the nutritional uh, recommendations and especially the fruits and vegetables because so many kids do not eat fruits and vegetables regularly. And what I would also say just in, you know, in terms of what Jessica just said is I think that 
we have all seen how difficult and challenging treating obesity is. And that's sort of why I do this plug for prevention and starting from birth. And I think that's where we all have to move because treating obesity is so very challenging. Thank you, Nancy. And you know, what we did in the cafeteria is we started selling, selling toilet paper instead of food, which is true. Yeah, <laughs> that is true because <laughs> we couldn't find the toilet paper so people couldn't get any other foods. Um, just a joke there. So uh, John, if you can uh, wrap it up with a question about exposed employees should we be testing them to determine if they're positive but asymptomatic? What's your recommendation for asymptomatic testing of exposed employees? Um, you know, uh, Sue MacArthur and Tracy, um, our infection control nurses, do a very good job at tracking contacts anytime there's an exposure at work. And I would actually defer to their, their management of that. So there are times where if it's a real exposure, the person didn't have a mask on and eye goggles were not there, et cetera, that testing would be indicated. But if PPEs are in place and the patient's wearing a mask, we have to really determine whether any exposure occurred at all. So again, I defer to our excellent infection control team to analyze each situation, which will be a little bit different. I think the, the, the clarification is, if, uh, which is if, if they were truly exposed in the home to somebody like a kid uh, without a mask, et cetera, should they be tested if they're asymptomatic within their quarantine period? Uh, you know, I think that's actually a good idea. So the answer would be yes in that specific question, Dr. Salazar, yeah, in thank my you. opinion. Um, so it's, it's 9 o'clock. We still have a few questions that we didn't answer. I want to thank uh, all of you for, for presenting this morning. Um, I, I have to remind all our team members that uh, October 1st, we begin our flu campaign. And for even if you're not part of the Connecticut Children's uh, specific uh, employer group, uh, all of you should be vaccinated for influenza. It is a condition of employment at Connecticut Children's starting October 1st through the 14th, just a reminder for that. So everyone, uh, be safe. We'll see you on Tuesday for Grand Rounds. We have a terrific presentation on gene therapy and sp spinal muscular atrophy by Dr. Jula Aksadi. And then next Friday, I mentioned it, but you might not have heard me, Dr. Shriver has been given a day of vacation. Um, and uh, he'll come back the week after that. And we will have Dr. Catherine Jane, Janeway talking about uh, pediatric solid malignancies and the clinical impact of genetics and collaboration. I think will be a wonderful lecture. So please do join us on Friday at 8 o'clock for a slightly different uh, modality, but please do join and have your coffee while we have it. So again, thank you, everyone. Be safe. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend, everyone.